Chapter Eleven of the King's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The King's Daughter by Pansy. Chapter Eleven: How to Teach Reckless Boys. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They are a very wild set," said Mister Nelson. "In fact, I am not sure that there are five wilder young men in the factory." That is encouraging," Dell said. "Well, in one sense it is, perhaps." At least it is very astonishing that they are willing to come to Sunday school even once more. Have they been before? Oh yes, several times. Never for two Sabbaths in succession. We don't expect that. We have had very queer times with them. Once they left in the midst of the exercises, and once they got into such uproarious laughter that the teacher left them in a huff or a fright. I hardly know which. It was unfortunate anyway. For since that time, their aim has been to dispose of every teacher given them. I think that is their principal object in being willing to try Sunday school again. And you want me to try to teach such a class? Dell exclaimed in amazement. That is precisely what I want. He answered, laughing. You see, Miss Bronson, it resolves itself into this. Speaking seriously now and earnestly, there is absolutely no one else, not a single person, who is willing to make the attempt. I have asked Mr. Tresevant, but he assures me he cannot. I think he is not disposed to risk the chances. They would be more than likely to make sport of everything he said, and I fancy he does not like to compromise his dignity. Perhaps he is right. Besides, he has a very important class of good Christian young ladies. Miss Emmeline Elliot is one of them. It is next to impossible to beg a teacher from his class for a temporary supply. They are so much attached to their teacher. Mr. Nelson said, "Dell, who had been thinking her own thoughts during the time, what do you honestly suppose I could do with such a class as you describe?" "That I honestly don't know," he answered, laughing again. "I am extremely anxious to try you and to discover, or more truthfully, I really don't expect you to do much of anything with them. I don't think any one can. But what I want to avoid is the necessity of saying to them, 'Boys, you may come to the Sunday school, of course.'" But we haven't a man or woman in our church who dares to undertake the charge of you as a class. Therefore, you must be teacherless. That is about what they expect, and they delight in the thought. Now, I did not come to you having any hope that you would grant my request. It is a strange one to make to a young lady. But as I told you before, you are my last resort. And if these fellows are willing to come inside the church, if only for one Sabbath. Isn't it a pity to lose the chance of saying something that might possibly do them good? Dell made apparently an irrelevant response. Mister Nelson, you are really the strangest man I ever met in my life. Mister Nelson turned thus suddenly from the subject that engrossed his thoughts, elevated his eyebrows, and looked astonished. I am. That amazes me. I thought I was very commonplace. May I inquire your meaning? Why, your conversation would lead me constantly to suppose that your life was permeated with a high Christian principle, and yet you disclaim all title to the name Christian. I do not understand it. I think I may say that I am actuated by principle," he said, smiling gravely, "the principle of love to the whole human race. Then I cannot see how you can help owning allegiance to Him who so loved the whole human race that He not only died for them, but lived for them solely on this weary earth for long, long years. Dell spoke quickly and with tones full of deep feeling. Her companion was entirely grave now and apparently sad. After a little silence, he said slowly and earnestly, "By their fruits ye shall know them." That is a Bible doctrine, is it not? 
I shall have to confess to you that the fruits which have fallen under my knowledge have not been such as to lead me to admire the tree on which they grew. Have you no exceptions to make? He answered her quickly, Oh, yes, indeed, I would not have you think me so cynical. Yes, I have known noble Christian men and women and admired them, but, pardon me, they really seemed to be the exceptions. There stood on the table beside Dell a neglected dish of fruit. All the good apples had been culled, leaving only the gnarled, gnarly ones. She seized upon one that chanced to be very small, very worm-eaten, and beginning to decay, and holding it up by the stem, said quickly, Ought you to judge the fruit of the apple tree by this specimen? He looked steadily and gravely at the apple, then at her, then smiling he bowed slightly and said, I accept your rebuke. But, Miss Bronson, what about my boys? Are they doomed to go teacherless? Why don't you take them yourself, Mr. Nelson? There are two reasons. In the first place, I have a class that I gathered at infinite pains. They have never had another teacher, and no other stands ready to take them. And, secondly, now I shall run the risk of appearing inconsistent again, but I do feel the need of securing for them a teacher who knows experientially about this high Christian principle of which you speak. Dell was silent and thoughtful. There was an old sentence sounding through her brain, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, and yet another, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Who was she that she had a right to hesitate? What do you mean by their being a wild set? she asked suddenly. How wild are they? Oh, they swear outrageously, and smoke profusely, and gamble whenever they get a chance, not often for money, for they have very little of that article about them, but for raisins, or pins, or straws, or anything that is convenient, and they use liquor freely, every one of them. Mr. Nelson, said Dell earnestly, I'm afraid I should miserably fail with such a class, and wouldn't that be worse for them than if I had not tried? They have had no other teaching than continued failures. They never had the same teacher twice, as no one would attempt it a second time. We have managed to be very unfortunate in our selections. One began at once to talk to them personally about their wicked ways, another addressed them solemnly as my dear young friends, and one tried to give them the story of Samuel. So you see, you start with at least equal hopes of success. Besides, what do you Christian people believe in regard to these matters? Have I not heard something about not leaning on an arm of flesh? A little silence fell between them, but at last Dell broke it. Well, Mr. Nelson, I will do the very best I can. Thus it came to pass that Dell Bronson, daintily clothed in purest white, stood in the doorway of the old church on the next Sabbath morning, waiting for Mr. Nelson to show her to her class. Are they here? she asked as he came toward her every one of them excessively amused over their own wit, and ready for almost anything. So am I. I declare to you I shall not be surprised in the least to be called on to help quell a riot. I don't know what turn their fun will take. I don't know whether I can do anything with them or not, but I am going to try, Dell answered, with that peculiar note in her voice that always gave one courage. Mr. Nelson, I want their names on a card. Do they know that I am to be their teacher? Mr. Nelson shook his head. I speculated some little time as to whether I would inform them. I finally decided not. I didn't like to risk it. Here are the names. Shall I go in and give you a formal introduction? Dell took the card and studied it carefully. Jack Cooley, Jim Forbes, John Barney, Dick Holmes, Henry Day. Do you suppose I shall ever know more about them personally than I do today? 
Mr. Nelson shook his head. I will neither encourage nor discourage you. I am in as noncommittal a state of mind as can be imagined. That is a remarkable encouragement, Dell said, smiling. No, thank you. I mean to introduce myself. Then she went in and took a seat in front of the five boys. They looked at her and at each other, chuckled and whistled not very loud, and made observations about her in a not very undertone. She turned toward them the moment the opening exercises were concluded with a very cheery, Good morning, young gentlemen. I don't know but you have the advantage of me. I presume you know that I am Miss Bronson, while I know your names, it is true, but haven't an idea which name belongs to which person. I shall have to ask your help. Will you be kind enough to tell me which is Mr. Cooley? If Dell had only known it, she had taken them at a disadvantage. They had been taught, or at least talked at, by middle-aged gentlemen in spectacles, by middle-aged ladies with severely rebuking faces, people who had evinced more or less embarrassment or bewilderment, as if they had said, How shall we approach these young savages? But they had never in their lives before come in contact with a young, pretty, exquisitely dressed lady, who surveyed them with utmost composure, without a trace of bewilderment or embarrassment, who addressed them with courteous politeness, as become a young lady speaking to young gentlemen. Not a single one of them laughed as they had previously expected to do, and the corner one answered promptly, My name's Cooley. Well then, Mr. Cooley, Dell said, holding out her hand with a bright smile, will you introduce me to the rest of the friends? Which Mr. Cooley, much to his own amazement, found himself doing, in a fashion somewhat unlike ordinary introduction, to be sure, but it answered Dell's purpose very well. After a few minutes' preliminary talk, she suddenly asked a question which seemed to greatly astonish them, yet it was simply, Are you interested in the lesson for today? Now it had never before seemed to occur to any of these teachers that there was a possibility of their being interested in any lesson whatever, so they stared at each other and laughed a little. Finally Mr. Cooley ventured to remark, We ain't no kind of an idea where the lesson is. Oh, you have not studied it, then? the innocent teacher said, speaking as if it were a matter of surprise. Then of course you will not be particularly interested in it. I find it is a lesson that requires a great deal of study. I have spent about four hours on it this week. At which remark Jim Forbes was very much amazed. For the land's sake, he said earnestly, how many verses is there in it? And upon being informed that there were only seven, he said with a contemptuous air, that he would bet a goose that he could learn them seven verses in a good deal less than four hours. Oh, it wasn't the committing to memory that took so long, Dell explained, but there was so much to think about in it all. It is about the blind man, you know, who sat by the wayside begging. He called to Jesus, you remember, as soon as he heard that he was passing by, and begged for his sight to be restored, and Jesus heard his call and gave him his sight, and I spent a good deal of time in trying to find out why the story was put in the Bible for us to read, and how many points of similarity there were between this blind man and the people around us nowadays who are blind, and the more I thought about it, the more interested I became. Did you find out what they put it in the Bible for? Dick Holmes questioned. Why, yes, said Dell. I think I found some reasons. It is apt to give us confidence in a physician, you know, when we hear of wonderful cures that he has performed. Then the thought that interested me greatly was that the blind man seemed entirely conscious of his own state. He appeared to be fully convinced that he was blind. I don't think that's anything great, Jim Forbes said contemptuously. 
I should think a fellow might find out mighty quick whether he was blind or not. I don't know. I was thinking he might have argued something like this. I don't believe I'm blind. People make a great fuss about seeing. I don't think it amounts to much. I shouldn't wonder if I can see as well as anybody can. What is seeing, anyway? Very likely there is no such thing. Haven't you heard people argue something in that way about things of which they know nothing? Jack coolly laughed. He had, he said, but Dick Holmes was ready for an argument. Yes, but you can prove to a blind man that he can't see, because you can describe things to him that he knows he never saw. But how are you going to make him believe that you have ever seen them? Can't I, being a Christian, describe things to a person that he knows he has never felt, and won't he be very likely to say, That's all imagination on her part, I don't believe a word of it? Then several of the others laughed and looked curiously at Dick, because this was precisely what he was in the habit of saying. Their looks made him reckless, and he spoke with an air of defiance. Well, I don't. I don't believe anything. I think these Bible stories are all humbug. I don't believe there ever was any blind man that got his sight again in the way it tells about. I think religion is all a pack of lies. Then he folded his arms and sat back triumphantly, and waited for the shocked look that he delighted to bring to people's faces. But he looked in vain. Dell's face was as serene as a summer morning. Yes, she said placidly, as if she might perhaps agree with every word he said. But, Mr. Holmes, you said you didn't believe anything. Of course you don't quite mean that. Don't you believe, for instance, that people die? Mr. Holmes started, but admitted that he did. You really have no doubt about it, have you, but that all people in this world will die? No, he hadn't the least doubt about that. Well, now, my Bible states that fact distinctly, stated it hundreds of years ago, not only that everybody would die, but what would be the average length of life, and I find that it has made no mistake. Here has been not even one exception to the law. I find that you believe so much unhesitatingly. Now, just suppose, for argument's sake, that everything else that the Bible states should happen to be true as this is. There are certain things that in one sense we cannot prove until we die, but since we know that we have got to die, wouldn't it be wise to be on the safe side, have the chances of securing all the joy that the Bible speaks of, if there should be any such thing to secure? It was a strange way of putting the question, a new way to them. They looked at each other in puzzled silence. That the thought interested them was certain, and Dell had very little difficulty in keeping up the interest to the end. It was a rather strangely conducted lesson. Not at all in the orthodox style, Dell was certain, but the superintendent's bell rang while they were still sitting thoughtful and quiet, boldly discussing questions that no one had ever permitted them to broach before. "'Did you give them a morphine powder?' Mr. Nelson questioned, with a look of puzzled wonder, as he met Dell in the hall. "'I certainly never knew them to be quiet before.' And Dell's answer was, "'Mr. Nelson, they every one promised me that they would come next Sabbath.'" End of chapter 11 Recording by Tricia G.